Agency Click presents Everything Film with Film Robot on BNN Bloomberg 1410 AM, also at 103.5 FM HD3. And streaming through Spotify, just go to Agency Click and listen to past episodes. Joe Leary, along with Patrick Shelton, and uh, there's definitely kind of a humorous theme that's running throughout this particular episode, because in addition to Paula Antill, who came from the stages of stand-up comic, we have a longtime stand-up comic and a very busy working actor as well, uh, Mr. Peter Kalamis. Nice to have you on the show. Thanks for doing this. Thanks for having me. What, uh, what inspired, just before we go into what you're doing today, what got you on stage doing stand-up uh, way back when? Uh, just growing up, watching it, um, and I'm going to age myself, but it's like, when, when I remember being a kid watching, like the Cara Burnett, Cara Burnett show was my probably first in, introduction to it, where I was just fascinated that, you know, people could do that for a living, uh, make people laugh. Like it, it, that's unheard of. My dad was a tailor. My mom was a seamstress. It's like, those are real jobs. It's not like, you know, acting like a jackass should be able to make uh, a living for yourself. You know, it, it shouldn't work that way, but, but it did. And it was fascinating to me from, from day one. And speaking of Carol Burnett, I always had the greatest deal of respect for her because she would always start the show by going out and taking questions from the audience. And yes. you never know what you're going to face. That was my favorite part of the show. Um, where people would request things like the Tarzan yell and all that stuff. And that used to be my, fa my favorite part. That and Tim Conway. Tim Conway, watching him do his character work, because I think he's one of the most gifted character comedic performers incredible time ever, ever in the history of television, the history of performing. It was unbelievable. That old man, I forget the guy's name, but he would just take forever. Mr. Perry. Yes. Or something. There was Mr. Mr. Tudball was the office guy, but that guy, you doing there, Mrs. Pickens? That guy. <laughs> and then the old guy would show up in different incarnations, like, uh, you know, in, in the Civil War or whatever, where, wherever have you, wherever they put him. And it was just hysterical. You know what always struck me about you, Peter, is that and I've met you a couple of times through mutual friends, and you right. always, you're a very affable guy. And the thing with stand-up comics and we were talking to Paul about this. You never know what they're like away from the mic. Some can be uproariously funny. Others can be really sullen and, and unpleasant. And yeah. you're just kind of that affable guy. Well, thank you, first off. And um, you're, you're right. Some come from, I don't know. When you look at stand-ups, there's always some kind of underlying need, whether it's the need for approval. I mean, I'm going psychological on this, but the need for approval, the need for applause, what, what have you, a father figure that goes all over the place. And, and some people come from more difficult kind of backgrounds. I mean, I met comics who really came from nothing and had to fight and claw their way to make a living. And then suddenly they were introduced to stand-up comedy and, and suddenly they had this whole world open up. And other people were, you know, a little more fortunate and kind of grew up in the, in the era where there's like clubs everywhere, one-nighters everywhere, because I grew up in a, in a time where, you know, you had to go on the road to really crappy places for really crappy shows and kind of earn your stripes along the way. Um, and then a, a few years in, more and more clubs started to open up and it was a little friendlier, uh, friendlier environment to perform in. But it used to be pretty nasty. Yeah, you know, I would imagine that the money wasn't that great. You had to pay your dues and the money didn't get better and better. So... When did you actually get a gig that you went, wow, I can usually, I, I can make an income out of this. I can make money. What, would, what, what do you remember as your first kind of 
entry into actually getting a, a, a sizable paycheck. And I'm, I'm assuming stand-up comedy didn't give you that right off the bat. Not, not right off the bat, but I remember, I think I, I can't remember if it was when I headlined the club uh, punchlines for the first time where, where in a, in a weekend I was going to make pretty close to what my father made uh, being a tailor for a month. Wow. Yeah. And for me, even he was wide eyed at that point because they thought of it as kind of a sideline. And when, then when I saw, they, they saw that I started uh, making a little bit of money at it. You know, I didn't do that every week. Nobody headlined every week. But for that week, it was kind of uh, something special, a bit of an accomplishment. Peter Kalamis is our guest on Everything Film with Film Robot. Just before we move to other ventures, Mr. Kalamis, I must ask you about a show I'm very fond of, and I watch it constantly in syndication, is Con Corner Gas. And yeah. the episode where you're, is it Bob Lane, your character? Yeah. Comedy yeah. Lane, and you're playing like a one-horse town like Dog River, thinking it's Wollerton. Right. But you must have had gigs like that where you're going, okay, these people don't look friendly and I have to make them laugh. This is going to be great. They're more than I could count. You, you know, uh, when I started out, I, my parents never really traveled much or, or ventured out to different towns exploring, you know, BC or Canada or anything. They, they weren't that kind of people. But um, so it was exciting for me when I first started and getting paired up with other comics, specifically a comic who, passed away a few months ago, Jerry Owens, um, who was kind of an old vaudevillian style kind of guy in punchlines. And I got paired up with him and we became kind of a comedic item for, for years. We, we paired up well together and they would send us to shows together all the time. And I got to go to places I'd never heard of, didn't want to go back to, couldn't wait to go back to. It, it ran the gamut. But some of them, you know, after the, the show, you had to pack your shit and get out of there quickly. Because, you know, there was physical harm to be had. I remember once we were playing, um, was it Williams? Williams Lake or Yellowknife? I can't remember. It was way, it was way up north. It wasn't, it wasn't Williams Lake. It was, it was further north. But during the show, we started the show. Everything was going okay. But you could tell it was a rougher crowd. You could tell by the feel. And then two guys wanted to beat the crap out of each other. So everybody went out. To, the bar emptied. We got off stage, went outside, watched the fight for 10 minutes and then came back in and everybody else came back in and then we finished the show. Wow. Yeah. That sounds like a, a rough crowd, a rough crowd. And just, to, just, to put a, <laughs> just, just to put a dollar figure on it, what does what a, a way up north gig generally pay a stand of comic? It, it used to vary. I mean, unfortunately, stand-up comic rates, even in the clubs, have not really gone up for... A very long time. Um, it's really unfortunate. I mean, you, you, I really feel for a lot of friends of mine right now, especially during the pandemic, that we're relying on stand-up comedy and live performances to make ends meet. These people are really hurting and continue to hurt. And it's um, it's a really difficult situation. I, I feel really badly for them. But, you know, gigs like that, like you were saying, back in the day, you'd make like 250 300 bucks, you know. And sometimes that included the drive up. Where you drive up, drive for eight hours, uh, walk into this very unfriendly uh, bar uh, with people that didn't really want to see you there, and uh, and then you'd leave the next day and drive back. 
And I didn't realize how much comics have been taken advantage of until I saw that documentary on the improv uh, in a comedy store and the places where you wanted to go to hone your chops in order to make The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson or whatever. But yeah. basically, it was almost slave labor when you think about it. It, it really was. I mean, it, it, it either got paid nothing or if you did a guest spot on a weekend, you might make 25 bucks if you're lucky. And, you know, I remember... Um, <clears throat> when I started doing uh, venturing down in the States a little bit, doing some shows, I got offered a headline gig at, um, at a club in one of the hotels there. And mind you, it was my first time in with them, but I've been doing it for quite a while. So they said, Oh, they saw you at this show at the, at the ice house and they loved it. And they want to book you. In. And they offered me, I think it was six fifty for, it was either nine or 11 shows. Uh, in a row. Wow. And I'm like, I turned it down. I'm like, thanks, but no. Uh, how about no? Well, you know, that's not even close to the the, no. hope, the hopes and dreams thing has always been a thing in the film industry. And like they can prey on that. And I think comedians had a lot of that. Like, I'll do it for free now, but later right. on, things are gonna get better. And having that feeling, but I can imagine there's a lot of people that would take advantage of that and say, you know what, hey, we got these young, I'm going to get five comedians for free, right? And I, I can imagine that people have gone through that and, you know, maybe there's some advice on how you could uh, protect yourself from that or, I don't know. Well, I, I mean, I think the advice would be is it's it, try not to rely on it for an income. Um, I know there was a period of time there where different clubs were coming into town and, and the yuck yucks chain had felt threatened at the time. And they were trying to get comics to sign exclusive contracts to only work their clubs. They weren't guaranteeing them work. They weren't guaranteeing them money. They just said, we don't want you to work anywhere else. Wow. It sounded like it was the most insane sounding thing to me ever. I'm like, why would you, if you're not promising me any work, why would I limit myself even more in an industry that's already tough to, to get ahead in? Um, so yeah, the clubs, even the, the like you say, the, the iconic clubs in the States, it was really uh, cutthroat for those performers coming up. Like the, being doing amateur nights at say, uh, you know, the Laugh Factory, they would literally put you on at two in the morning and give you three minutes. Mm -hmm. And you, you had lined up, you know, at noon or something. Yeah. And you hang out and you get your three minutes. It's, uh, it was real tough. And you would you would do it in the hope that someone in the audience was say one of the uh, bookers for you know right. talk shows and you get a shot on that and boom next thing you know you're you're a star. So what made you? I mean, I'm presuming you don't. Do you still jump when I'm mean, pre-pandemic? I might add. Do you still get the urgency too or tendency? Do you still jump up on stage the odd time or have you sort of shifted your focus away from stand-up? I, I have shifted it away. I mean, I part of it is you know this is a personal thing, but I mean, you know, I'm over 50. I think it's more of a young person's game, not to say that there's older comics out there that aren't wildly entertaining. There are, <clears throat> but I think it is, it is a bit of a young person's game. I still find myself writing jokes though. I don't do as many, I may, there's a few clubs like the Kino, which sadly they just announced is about to close, mm -hmm. uh, which is run by Steve Allen, who, who used to do stand up himself. He's an old friend of mine. And it's, it's a really sad day for Vancouver because I don't know where they, they did like, I forget what the number was, 800 shows over the span of those many years uh, in that venue, uh, inviting comics to just come up and 
do whatever they wanted, which was incredible. But um, yeah, I don't know. It's just, uh, it, it's a weird world to try to get ahead in. And, and Peter, you know, we, we, we touched on the pandemic and a lot of people getting hurt through that and whatnot. But what about if we could touch on a little bit about um, the cancel culture and political correctness and what that's done to comedy. Can you maybe comment on that without offending? Yeah. I, I, I think a good degree of it is, is warranted. Um, it's, it's an easy thing. It's a, sip, a slippery slope, you know, when, when is somebody, I remember years back, uh, Michael Richards from, um, uh, yeah, Seinfeld fame was. I think he was at the Laugh Factory when he was that incident, yes. going off on a big thing, and then he thought it would be funny in his in his rant to fire out the N word repeatedly, and everybody in this day and age, and even then, had cameras, so they filmed it, and it was pretty detrimental, I think, to his career. And it wasn't a great idea. It wasn't particularly funny. Um. So, when you look at something like that, you're like, wow, that that seems kind of deserved because uh, it's socially unacceptable to do that. Yeah, yeah. But when people are, I mean, I do, I, I did a lot of characters in my routine doing different voices, like uh, Asian voices, East Indian voices, Greek voices. And I very rarely, really rarely had anybody offended by the joke because I always, when I did a character like that or, or a nationality like that, a certain voice, I, I never, I was very conscious never to put them in a derogatory situation. Yeah. It was always a story of, wow, I went to a store or I had a contractor and then launch into the, my East Indian contractor telling me something that I couldn't understand. So I never put them in demeaning situations and I never really had people call me on that because it was never my intent. But do you to, think to do that? That's what I'm kind of getting at, like that same routine that you're talking about. Yeah. Which- my opinion, and I'm going to go out there and say it is uh, is a joke, and it's in my opinion, it's harmless. Do you think people are afraid to put on that type of performance now nowadays, like what you just said? Yeah, uh, I'm not, a lot of people are hesitant. I'll say that to do that now. Uh, the spectrum of acceptable things now is, is much more narrow, um, and like I say, part of it is warranted, but another part is you used to have the peripheral comics that were, you know, the bad boys or the bad girls of comedy that, that would touch on those subjects. And now I don't think we're going to see much of that. If, if ever again, for a long, long time. What, what I find is odd, Peter, and we don't want to make this point too hard, but what yeah. I find is odd is, is Hank Azaria with the voice of Apu on the Simpsons for right. years and seasons. Um, they, obviously they've relished the character to the, the graveyard and he's now really apologetic to the Indian community. Yeah. People in that community are going, we weren't offended by it. We thought it was cute. Yeah, he seems really uh, offended, or, or not offended. He seems really bothered by it personally. And um, I mean, I don't know. I don't, I don't know him personally. I, I, don't, I agree that I think he's, he's apologized. And, and I agree with you that the, the community itself seems to be not as offended as he thinks they are. I don't know if that's accurate or not, but um, I don't know. It, it's for me, that's what I always enjoy doing with voice is doing other characters uh, and other nationalities and accents and all of that. That's what I, uh, I like thriving in that arena. And nowadays I, I've had auditions come along that say they're ethnic 
specific in the sense that it's, it's say an Asian voice and I'm not allowed to audition for it even though mm -hmm, mm -hmm. it's a voice. So that part, I, I don't, I don't agree with. So you know. Peter, tell us about some of the voice work uh, that you've done because you again have really sort of jettisoned yourself from Peter Kalamas comma actor to Peter Kalamas everything. Yeah, I, I mean, I've been lucky. I always did characters and voices and stuff in my stand-up growing up and, and along the way, and that parlayed into uh, voice work. I mean, some of the more notable ones are like uh, Goku and Dragon Ball Z and Rolf and Ed, Ed and Eddie. Those are probably the two biggest ones that I've done. Um, I just finished a series for Netflix literally 10 days ago. Um, and, and amongst other ones I've done, I've been lucky enough to, to stay very, very busy in the in the animation world. Just a little sample of a voice or you got something for us that you can throw down? Um, one, one I did, and this was a bit of a cheat, but uh, there was one called uh, Crypto the Superdog a number of years ago. And they had this kind of squirrely uh, little tail terrier was his name. And I clearly at the time just ripped off Ross Perot. Like to the, t I didn't even try to mask it. It was just like, ah, we got to get up there and get this in there and don't run my name. And it was just like, you rip off the voice completely. And they were like, yeah, it's great. So they what they rolled with that. Um, <laughs> but there's times, I remember one time, there was a series called a, a Class of the Titans. And it was kind of this Greek mythological kind of yeah, yeah. animated action show. And I remember I went in, I read for a couple of characters. And then there was a character called uh, Grandma Hercules, which Hercules' mother, or, sorry, grandmother. And I said, oh, before I leave, I want to read for that. And they're like, oh, yeah, yeah. Right. I said, no, no, I'm serious. I, I want to read for that one. They're like, okay. And so I read for it and then I got it because I just did my Greek grandmother. You know, you draw from what you know. So it just turned into, oh, Harry, why don't you lay down? You look so tired. <laughs> and again, I'm playing a female, which again, uh, nowadays they, they even try to be gender specific into the roles. Um, and, and again, to be fair, there's a lot less female roles available. Uh, there's more now than there used to be, but they do have less roles. So, I mean, I can understand why somebody might have been upset that I got this female role there. It was kind of a mm -hmm. special circumstances that I was just doing my Greek grandmother and landed that one. During your career, Peter, have you always remained Vancouver-based? Was there ever the, the lure or, or the desire to maybe, you know, go elsewhere? Yeah, I mean, we, we've ventured down to the States. We have a, we have a place in the States and uh, have ventured down. The majority of my work though is Canada and, and I say Canadian based, a lot of US shows that are up here obviously. And there's a, a tremendous amount of work here. And it's always the city that you kind of grew up in is the city that the casting directors and the people that uh, direct that kind of thing know who you are. So even breaking down into LA, my resume looks huge but there's still a lot of people who don't know or don't trust who you are because they haven't worked with you before. So it's, it's still a tough nut down there heading down as a Canadian. Good. Does your timing go off the longer you stay away from it? Like, could you jump up on stage, assuming that a stage will open soon? Could you jump up on a stage today and pull out your last set, your last routine and still kill with it? I'd be terrified. First off, uh, I'd feel rusty as hell. Um, <laughs> You know, I'd be pacing around stand up every almost every single show I did. I was always nervous before I couldn't really eat before 
beginning to end, you know, from day one to the last show I did, always very nervous. The, the corporate ones almost made me sick to do because the, the stress involved. Yeah. Um, so I don't know. I, I would do it. It would scare me, but I'd do it. I'll maybe have to do it one more time. We'll see in the future, right? Things get back, right? Yeah, sorry, what? I said in the future, you're probably going to have to do it at least one more time. No, no, I'm sure I'll do more than one. And like I say, I still find myself writing down some yeah. things and I'm like, well, this will be, be a good bit when, when I get a chance to do it. Um, and we, as we asked Paula, um, having seen you, you don't do a lot. I don't really believe you do blue, do you? I don't. I, like I say, it's more character based and, and my, although, the, you know, there's some bluish comics that, that have made me laugh over the years. That's never really been my uh, flavor of comedy. I, I, I've always had the rule of, you know, is this going to make me laugh? And that that's what I'll do. Um, and luckily throughout the years, there's been other people that share that kind of flavor of comedy. So I, you know, I got to do it for quite a while. So Peter, I, I got a question for you. Just, um, you, you know, you have a long career film as well, not just stand up. Um, who would you say is the most famous person you've ever worked with or met or had an encounter with? <clears throat> I wish I could say who I just worked with like four days ago, because they're probably the most famous person I've gotten to work with. Um, two of them, actually. I uh, just finished a movie and uh, both of them were huge names in their own right and it's annoying that I can't say who they are because I can't mention the project but along the way though one thing I did from my very first gig was I kept my uh sides yeah now for those who don't know what sides are uh listening and watching the program they're the mini scripts that you're handed when you get to set they're miniaturized so they're easier to handle you gotta put them in your pocket but they have all the info of the scenes but they also have a list of who's working that day on the movie with their, you know, uh, character number. Like if the star of the movie is number one and then it goes down chronologically in order of uh, the size of the role. So I kept those from day one. And I, some of the names I still have are uh, you know, Brad Pitt, um, Angelina Jolie, Morgan Freeman, Kevin Spacey, um, Seth Rogen. I mean, there's, over the years, there's been some really cool names on there. That's mostly and, uh, Vancouver work that you're using? Primarily, primarily. I got to do a few episodes of uh, Glow about a year and a half ago. And that was pretty cool because we loved the show. And then Gina Davis, you know, sitting there chatting to Gina Davis. You kept yourself pinching yourself sometimes, you know, you're, you're kind of starstruck being there. And you're like, you know. It, it's it's odd that as we're recording this, it's it's Oscar night, and I guess tonight yeah. you could watch them and go worked with him, worked with her, worked. You know, you could probably nail a few of them off, right? That like that. Yeah, a few, a few, and it's and it's always pretty neat, and um, it, it's fun too. Like I, I still get invited to a number of conventions uh, throughout the years where you you go and you you know sign autographs and sell some merch, that kind of stuff, and. Um, I've even met some pretty interesting people there that I grew up watching, you know, because um, some of them, they have kind of themes to them. They're like, oh, it's a 70s, 80s kind of uh, convention. And you go, that's Bernie from the love boat, <laughs> literally. I was, um, I, was I was talking the other day. I think I was talking to you, Joel, about this. Is, um, and I thought it was a funny thing. You, you ever realize that there's people that you meet or they meet you and 
they know who you are, but it's just good enough for like a good glance back. Like Joe has yeah. hundreds of people that he's interviewed or talked to, but you pass them in a corridor and it's like, I know you, but not quite enough to acknowledge you. Mm-hmm. you know what I'm talking about when I say that, like you get those people that are just, you know, it could be a pro athlete or hockey guy or anybody, right? They, you've met them, but not quite enough. You have- no, and I, and I, I do get that. I, I, I probably get that more than people who actually know me and can mention a name, you know, that matches. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but especially at conventions too, like there's a couple of big ones like uh, dragon con and that happens in, uh, in Atlanta, Georgia every year. It's a massive one that happens Labor Day weekend. And it's all sorts of, it's not just sci-fi. It's all sorts of TV. And they have something called the walk of fame where they put all the, the quote celebrities in for signings. And, uh, that's been cool. Cause I've had to, I've gotten to do that a number of years. Last time I was there, I remember, uh, Peter Mayhew was sitting across. I was on one side of the hall. He was on the other. And just as I'm getting picked up to get taken back to uh, the airport to fly back up, he was right there. It was in the alleyways of the hotel, but there he is like Chewbacca having a smoke. And I'm like, I don't want to bother him right now. You know? <laughs> and, and he since passed away. And now I'm like, Oh, maybe I should have bothered him and just, but no, I didn't. I, I, it was the right choice. He's just sitting there. He's been dealing with crowds all day and he's just having a smoke. And I was like, it just kind of looked over. It was a bit of a nod. Um, but you, you, you get to meet some really cool people that you grew up watching sometimes. No doubt. Well, this was a first for us, Peter, because this is our first Zoom interview for Everything Film. And uh, it's also a weekend and I know you're a family man. So we really appreciate you taking the time. And hopefully when we can remove the masks and get amongst each other once again, yeah. hopefully down the road, we'd love to have you in with us so we can chat some more because it's great to catch up with you. Yeah, well, it's been great. And I'd love to. Thanks, my friend. Thanks so much. Cheers. Thanks a lot, guys. I, take care. Okay. Thanks, Pete. Cheers. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Thank you. See you again. So it, the show airs uh, Saturday and Sunday, probably at either 11 or noon. I haven't confirmed the time yet on okay. Bloomberg Radio. And then the uh, the interview will be on Spotify under Agency Click. Okay. And we will uh, make arrangements to get the audio link of the interview to you. Or, yeah, we'll send everything yeah, we'll send to you. Yeah. Yeah. But really, really appreciate, yeah, that went really really appreciate well. your time. Really like that. Awesome. Thanks a lot, guys. Thanks. Have a good one.